Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18 is the sermon text. And you say, are we really going to have another sermon on sexual sin? And the answer is yes, we are. Because there, I'm, I'm, I'm already preaching, but there's no sin which has been so destructive to the church and to nations and to families in this sin. And are you surprised to find that the Bible is full of it? And I would remind you that a, pres- a minister in her own presbytery has fallen to this very thing. So let the church take heed lest she fall into this sin. And let her holiness be known in her sexual morality. Listen to God's word. Leviticus chapter 18. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God according to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt you shall not do and according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you you shall not do nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister the nakedness, or the daughter of your father or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover. For theirs is your own nakedness. The nakedness... Of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father, she is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is near of kin to your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is near of kin to your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law, she is your son's wife. You shall not uncover the, her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near of kin to her. It is wickedness. Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. Also, you shall not... Approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire of Molech. Nor shall you profane the the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these uh, things the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it as it is vomited out uh, the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who commit 
uh, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore, you shall keep my ordinances so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord, your God. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word as always. And we ask you that now through the preaching, you might shed new light on it and bring it with power to your people. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we come now to uh, the second chapter of uh, what we call the Holiness Code, uh, chapter 17 to the end of the book of Leviticus. Uh, And each chapter along the way makes its own particular contribution to uh, the idea of holiness. Uh, And so as we look at that idea, we'll be building out our conception of what holiness means and holiness, you realize uh, and know well, is not confined to the Old Testament, but it's something that is uh, just as equally stressed in uh, the New Testament. Uh, while at the same time, these chapters, each of them has its own particular focus, uh, laying down particular laws. And the laws here deal with uh, sexual immorality. I would divide uh, this under four headings, the first of which is the general law of holiness which has uh, in itself two main facets, verses 1 through 5. First and foremost, uh, the focus of the law of holiness. If you read verses 1 through 5, it's clear that the Lord uh, isn't actually laying down any laws. He's just speaking generally. He's telling the people what the law of holiness and the life of holiness looks like. And, And the overwhelming focus of those verses is God himself. I am the Lord your God. He says that over and over again. And it becomes a kind of refrain throughout the passage. And so this is the facet which stands supreme in the life or the law of holiness. Uh, For we find it not only at the beginning, but throughout and then again at the end in verse 30. What God is saying is that I am the foundation and the source of all that is true and right. And the trouble with all who are unholy and unrighteous, in essence, is that uh, they are unlike God. That is what unholiness is like, and that they live a life apart from God. They do what is right in their own eyes. Uh, They commit unspeakable abominations. Uh, It's shameful even to think of them, let alone utter them from a pulpit, and yet, uh, or read them in God's word. And yet, this is how the unbeliever lives. He lives a life apart from God. He doesn't know God. But what God is saying that is that true, true holiness arises out of a knowledge of God. When he says, I'm the Lord your God, he's saying, know me, stand in covenant with me, learn of me, be like me. I am holy, so you be holy, as he says uh, in the next chapter, chapter 19, verse 2. And walk in my ordinances. Uh, indeed, that word walk is one that's it's a very useful one. Uh, it's similar to the word live. We're not looking at particular acts of sin uh, necessarily uh, so much as we're looking at uh, as though to say the holy man never commits particular acts of sin. That's why I put it that way. Uh, So much as we're saying, what is the course of a man's life? What is the tenor of his walk? Is he walking with the Lord or is he and in his ordinances or is he walking according to the course of the age? The course of the age is marked, I say again, by unholiness. But more particularly, the law of holiness, uh, as it is spelled out in this chapter, has to do with sexual practices. 
And it is here where we are seen to differ radically from the world in which we live. In fact, I doubt anyone would disagree with me when I say that there is hardly any single point in which the difference between the world and the church is seen than this. What we do with our bodies. The difference between the church and the world becomes apparent in radical fashion when you look at our practices in this regard. And that's always been true. Look at the world today and see what they call good and right. It's not just what they do, it's what they praise, it's what they delight in, what they celebrate. Homosexuality, divorce, adultery, remarriage, fornication, increasingly Children are sexualized through what is called gender therapy. Children are murdered in the wombs of women daily by the thousands in the name of sexual freedom. And you read Leviticus 18 and you say, is our age really that different than theirs? No, it isn't. They were sacrificing children to Molech in the name of sexual liberty. And so we do the same. That is the course of the world. That's always been the course of the world. And so I say it's nothing new. You go back to the days of Israel and you see this is what she witnessed in Egypt. It's what she witnessed uh, going into Canaan. This is how the world lives. You go to the days of the New Testament in the Roman uh, society, the Roman Empire. And what you found is that these kinds of sexual sins were rampant. And the message of the New Testament is that you are to be holy. You are to be distinct. These kinds of practice which are prevalent in the world are not even to be named among you. Again, I ask, how often is the difference in the New Testament between God's people and the rest to be found on the single point? How out of place the New Testament tells us And I'm telling you how out of place, how totally out of place is sexual sin in the Christian life. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians now chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. I read chapter 5. Notice the contrast. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Do you notice it's sexual sin over and again? Uh, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our Lord. This is how you used to live, Paul is saying. You used to be just like them, but God took you out of that. And he made that which was unholy, holy. And let your life now reflect it. Uh, are these the things you even want to do anymore? How totally out of place sexual sin is in the church and in the Christian life. Uh, similarly, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, your tolerating of the sin is not good. You ought to have dealt with it, not just in your own life, but the sinner in your midst. But at times I find myself wondering, about the church in America, the Reformed Church in America, have we taken this point to heart? Or are we still looking for sympathy? Are we really prepared 
to heed the admonition to abstain from sexual immorality in all of its forms. That is the admonition of the whole Bible. Do you want to be holy? That's the question. Do you want to be part of a fellowship that's holy? Looking at holiness more generally, do you want to dwell in God's presence? That's one of the points we're going to see in the holiness code. The church isn't just a bunch of people who are different from the world. The the church are the people who dwell in God's presence. And their lives reflect that. If that's what you want, then what the Bible is, is telling you is to honor God with your body. Stop sinning with your body. That's what the pagans do. That's not what the Christian does. And you can never be holy until you forsake sexual sin in all of its forms. But let me also say this. Because this is another error that the church often makes. And that is that holiness is not just abstaining. Nor does God present it in that way in this chapter. It's also something positive. Do you see that too? It isn't just don't do, but do. Verses 3 and 4. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. But verse 4, he says, you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances and walk in them. I'm the Lord your God. It isn't just don't do, but do. Or even keep in verse 30. Therefore, you shall keep my ordinances. You see, what God is saying is that if you just abstain from the practices of sinners, you're still not holy. You're halfway there, but you're not there. Holiness is abstaining from sin and practicing holiness. It's putting off the practices of the old man and putting on the practices of the new man. And so it isn't enough to just abstain from sexual sin. You've got to be engaged in the kinds of acts that God is calling you to. As husbands, as wives, as individuals. And when God says keep, he's he's, he's raising the stakes. He's actually speaking in priestly language. If you see guard or keep. In the Old Testament, it's always telling you, here's something you want to protect. It's something you want to hold on to. You don't want to give it up. Don't let the world erode your commitment to this. Guard it just as Adam was called to guard the sanctuary from the entrance of the serpent. Keep holiness pure. Keep sin out of the church. And so holiness amounts to this. Not walking in the ways of the world, number one. And number two, observing what God commands. That's the law of holiness. Letting our lives be patterned, or excuse me, conformed to the pattern of obedience found in his laws. It is uh, acknowledging that the right manner of life can only be prescribed by him, not by us. You want to be holy, listen to the Lord. Listen to what he's telling you. He wants you to do with your life. I am the Lord. You belong to me. If you want to be holy, you have to acknowledge that. That only his will can ever be right for you. And this will look, uh, this kind of life will always look different than the world. The church and the Christian who lives like this will always be distinct. And her light will always be shining. Here is the way to live, God is saying. That's the first point, the law of holiness. But then... The second point is in verses 6 through 18, the laws of consanguinity and affinity. I never heard that until I went to seminary. Uh, And perhaps you never heard it until today. 
Uh, I know some of you have. Uh, what, what is that all about? Uh, it's talking here about the one who's near of kin in verse 6. We would say incest. Uh, it's, it's quite frankly marrying a family member. That's what God is forbidding here. What's fascinating is uh, that you actually find this language in our confession. Uh, chapter 24, section 4. Marriage ought not to be within degrees of consanguinity and, uh, or affinity beyond, or excuse me, forbidden by the word. Nor can such incestuous, there's the word, marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. Uh, if, you, if you break a law of consanguinity or a law of affinity as prescribed in God's word, uh, you may claim that you are husband and wife, but you are not. Uh, just as a man may marry another man in the eyes of the world and claim that he's married, but he isn't. Or you may be married and take a second wife and claim she's your wife, but she isn't, and so on. That's the way the law of God works. And, and actually, uh, shockingly, even in this country, the law still works like that. Uh, and so you'll find laws of consanguinity and laws of affinity in, in our country. You can't marry your cousin, for instance, uh, uh, within a certain range or degree. And uh, the language of uncovering the nakedness, perhaps uh, that's the language I should use. It's a discreet way of saying uh, having sex with. Uh, so it just means it, it just means that the emphasis here, the prohibition has to do with uh, whom you may have sexual relations with, not your relative, whether uh, your blood relative. Those are degrees of consanguinity or by marriage laws of affinity. You may not. Uh, you may not have a blood relation to this person, but if this person is your family by marriage, you may not marry them either. But it's not an absolute law. Uh, it, it, there are degrees, you see. And you, at a certain point, you've gone far enough out, outside the circle, uh, and, and, and you can marry someone uh, that you are related to. Every age has had to wrestle with this. At what point is it lawful and at what point is it incestuous? Again, uh, I, w- I would note uh, that the laws of America wrestle with this. The laws of Israel did this. At what degree of separation can I lawfully marry someone? That's the question. But did you ever realize that that is what holiness is all about? Holiness is about governing the relations between the man and the woman. Who may marry another? Whom may I marry? God created man and woman in the garden. And he intended that the man and the woman should be married. But ever since uh, that was set up, God, not man, God has regulated the marriage ordinance. And that is how holiness is preserved through marriage. Holiness is lost in marriage when God's laws that govern marriage are ignored. And so God doesn't say, as long as you marry a woman, oh man... Uh, you, you're keeping my law. Not so. That's what he makes clear in Leviticus 18. You can imagine how this was a particular problem facing the Jews. Uh, in fact, this is a problem that's facing immigrant communities in other countries today who say we want to marry within the community. Well, if the community is only so large, you can imagine uh, that it's difficult to marry someone outside of your family. Uh, and there are there are communities today in which incest is rampant. The Jews were saying, I can't marry uh, the pagans. That was forbidden. I have to marry a fellow Jew. Indeed, a kinsman according to the flesh. But only with within certain degrees. You can see 
the dilemma that presented. Uh, at other times, uh, you historians know that this is a problem that faced our own people in America. Uh, the Americans on the frontier, for instance, in a frontier town where there's only so many people. Let's say your wife dies on the frontier. Wh- whom do you marry when there's only so many options? Well, you go back to the law of God and you find directions. And God says, this person you may marry and this person you may not. And then you obey. But what is of particular interest to us is how this idea This particular idea of Leviticus 18 is upheld in the New Testament. It's one of the questions that we have throughout Leviticus, especially which laws uh, apply today and which laws don't. And you might have thought, well, here's a law that doesn't apply today, but it does. It is upheld explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The specific sin in view, which Paul says uh, is so out of place in the church, is precisely what is forbidden in this chapter. And that the case here deals with the laws of affinity and not consanguinity underscores the fact uh, of the abiding relevance of these laws. In other words, uh, the furthest degree. It's not just forbidding the blood relation, but even the relation through marriage. Even then, uh, a man may not marry his father's wife. In other words, his stepmother, even even if the father died, you know, in first Corinthians five, it doesn't say that she might have he might have died. He still can't marry her. That is his mother in law. And even where there's no blood relation, there is the strongest prohibition attached to such behavior. It is called unholy sexual behavior. And what is especially noteworthy in first Corinthians chapter five, which strongly underscores the whole logic of holiness is Paul says that even the unbeliever frowns upon such a thing. You see, holiness means that I abstain from what they're doing. But how shameful when the church is practicing things that even the pagans won't do. Even the pagans consider as shameful. And thus the the argument for practical holiness in the church is bolstered. For it is not enough for the church to shun those practices for which uh, the unbelievers approve. But we must especially shun those uh, about which they disapprove. And how far have we fallen from the dictates of holiness if even the unbeliever is forced to frown upon the conduct of the church as they did in the days of Corinth? And you wonder what the, the world thinks today of the church when she looks in at our behavior and our practice. But as a third point... We have what I would call various laws. So there you have the laws of consanguinity and affinity. You can uncover the nakedness of your relative within certain degrees. But then you have a more specific list of various laws. It includes things like adultery, abortion, homosexuality. And notice uh, especially the way homosexuality is highlighted. Well, I would say abortion is too. You're profaning the name of the Lord. You're committing idolatry when you kill your babies to Moloch. But you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. Do you think the Lord feels any differently about that today? I I, I know I I don't have to convince you, but it, it, it never ceases to amaze me how people today are at pains to say that uh that God is okay with the sin. It's an abomination. Don't tell me that's the ceremonial law. This is how God feels about this sin. Then bestiality. Uh, I can hardly hardly describe such a sin. 
Do you see what the Lord says at the end, verses 19 through 23? It's perversion. All these practices desecrate and pervert the sanctity of what God created in the garden. The sanctity of the relation, the loving relation between the husband and the wife. It's such a good word. It's a word we need to use more. We look at these things and we need to say, it's a perversion. Homosexuality, abortion, adultery. Again, we cannot read such a list and not think of the excesses of our own day. We find a a description of what we find in America today. Perhaps uh, one thing only we've not descended to, and that's bestiality. But one can only imagine how long it will take. And Do you remember the argument of Romans chapter 1? Paul is describing a kind of downward spiral. uh, The descent into sin in which not just the person but nations fall into. And at a certain point he says you've reached the bottom. Well, I don't think it's controversial to say in America we've reached the bottom. We've reached the bottom. In the world in which Israel lived, the nations had reached the bottom. But do you notice this as well? That God says there's no exceptions. Do not defile yourself with any of these things. God isn't saying holiness consists of doing 95% or abstaining from 95% of the, the sins of the nations. But it is total abstinence from those sins. Do not partake of any of them. The world may have reached the bottom of the barrel. But how are you living? That's the question that God is asking his people. That's the standard. Do not partake of her sins. The sins of Babylon. And yet I would say again. As we look at the depths of the darkness of the age and the nation in which we live. I read of the wickedness of the Canaanites and of the Egyptians. I read of the wickedness of Romans. The Romans uh, and the Greek culture in the New Testament. And I see no difference with our own age. Uh, Men seem, as the Puritans would say, in a hurry to get to hell. They can't wait to get there. They sin with such gusto. But do you see not only the need for holiness, and that's something the church needs to hear, but also the opportunity that such uh, darkness presents for the light of holiness now to be shining and dispel the darkness of sin. Do you see the opportunity? Sin is so prevalent today, but is holiness prevalent in the church? And is it obvious that we are different? And if it is, will it not have a tendency to correct and to check the excesses found today in the world? Here is our opportunity to uh, our opportunity to, to shine as lights, to function as salt. Simply by conforming our lives to the standard of God's word, not of this age. Do you hear what God is saying to the church? You are to be holy. You are to be separate. I am the Lord who dwells in your midst. And my glory will appear in the holiness of my people. And that is always true in every age. But the fourth point is this. And that is the defilement of sin. Do not defile yourself with any of these things. For by all these the nations are defiled. Verse 24. You think of what is said in the New Testament. Uh, Keep the marriage bed undefiled. That's the thought here. Keep the marriage bed undefiled. 
And in the context of the cleanliness laws that we read of earlier in chapters 11 through 15, we are reminded here how uh, sexual sin is perversion, how it defiles the sinner. To commit sin is to be defiled by it, especially, uh, Paul says, uh, those sins which we commit with the body. But God goes beyond that, and we need to go beyond that. It doesn't just defile the person or his body, but sexual sin defiles nations. It defiles lands. It defiles peoples. It defiles churches. Do not be deceived, Paul says. People who practice such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. They may tell you they're Christians, but they're not. Do not be deceived, he says in the chapter before. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What is he saying? He's saying that sin is leavening. It spreads. It defiles. You cannot tolerate sin in the midst of the church or in the midst of the nation and not be defiled by the sins of others. Did you ever realize that? This is a powerful incentive. To the practice of holiness. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. And you shall not commit any of these abominations. Any of you of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. The concerns of holiness are pervasive. And can you. Uh, God is saying can you commit these things without being defiled by them. Can you tolerate them among you in others and not be defiled by their sin? The answer in both cases is no, you cannot. And do you not see throughout the history of the Old Testament, and can you not see even today, the dreadful judgments that, that befall individuals and nations for these kinds of sins? It isn't enough, God is saying, uh, for me to say as an individual, well, uh, at least I don't commit such sins. He may very well still be defiled by the sins of others. And what is God's solution? Uh, here we get to the central concern of holiness, namely that you are called to separate yourself from sinners. That's what be holy means. It means be separate. Separate yourself from sinners. And if there are sinners among you, separate them from yourselves. Where are we to do this? That's the question. And in the Old Testament, the answer was the nation. But in the New Testament, the answer is the church. The church is to be holy. As a church, separate yourselves. Remain distinct from the world. Don't go out of it, Paul says, but maintain a distinct identity as Christian people by adhering to the pattern of holiness that God has laid down in his word, and by shunning the practices of others, indeed in many cases, the practices which you once committed. But for these things you are now ashamed, Paul says. Abstain from them personally. And then, if such things should find their way into the church, sexual sin especially, there's only one thing to do. You've got to confront it. Uh, too often the, the, the pastor or the elders or the church looks the other way. You've got to deal with sexual sin. You've got to have, uh, I would say, a zero tolerance policy. This is not something that you allow to go on untreated in the church. You've got to confront the sinner. You've got to call him to repentance. You've got to preserve the holiness of the church. 
How easily. How easily the holiness of the church might be lost by the sins of one. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 5. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Can you tolerate the sinner and not be defiled by his sin? No, you cannot. Deal with him if he will not repent. Remove him from your midst. The unrepentant sexual sinner. Only then can you maintain a status and uh, of, of true holiness as the people of God. Again, it isn't enough to say, well, I'm not doing these things. He may be doing them, the man beside me in the pew, but I'm not doing them, therefore I'm holy. That is not holiness. You've got to go so far as to preserve the holiness of the church. And if the church will not deal with sexual immorality in her midst, then she's lost her holiness. She's lost her saltiness. And how will she get it back again? And so the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and following, his prescription for the church is this. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. But is he talking about? Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral. Do you see the point? Don't even eat with such a person, Paul says. For what have I to do do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. That's what God called the church to do in the Old Covenant. Leviticus chapter 18. That's what God calls us to do in the New Covenant. And sadly, that's something we've had to do. But it is, it is the clear teaching of Scripture. And it is essential to the life and the holiness of the church. Do you want to be holy like this? That's the question. If you want to be holy like God is holy, well then shun the sinful practices of this world. Do not contract the defilements of the world in which you live, Babylon. Shun what is evil and practice what is good. Have nothing to do with what is evil. Let marriage be held in honor and the marriage bed, let it be kept free from defilement. For I am the Lord, God says, and I will dwell among a people who are holy. Or as Paul says, let me give you just a bit of gospel. Remember what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this reminds us of the day of atonement in Leviticus 16. How quickly we lose sight of that. We want to hear all about what we're called to do, but we forget the basis of what we're called to. Why are we called to a life of radical holiness? It's because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed on the day of atonement. That is the day of his crucifixion. Our sin was put away. And if our sin was put away, ought we not to live lives of radical holiness and devotion unto him? Therefore, he says, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our, pack, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity of truth. Christ has been sacrificed, beloved. He is our Paschal Lamb. He is our atonement. Let us keep the feast. You see, again, I would say holiness isn't just the negative. Let us see the positive. Let us seek to live a life which is pleasing to God for Christ has died for us. Amen. And let us stand uh, together.